I was never a really good distance runner, so when I competed against a bunch of other young dudes in the mile or three mile, I don't know what it was, I didn't do so, I didn't do so well. No, it's fine. I tried hard, but it wasn't my sport. But when we got to the relay, which necessitated sprinting, I knew I was in my sweet spot. So when the coach put me in the last leg of the, what is it, when you do the whole circle? The, on the anchor, I was the anchor, thank you. I was that last little piece, whatever you call that. I don't want to get all technical and talk over your head, but just know that's what I'm referring to. So we set up the people. The guys were in the first, second, and third leg, and I was the anchor. It was amazing. Uh, which sounds like that would slow you down, wouldn't it? Like the anchor stops you from moving. So why are you called the anchor? In any event, the gun goes off. That's exactly what it sounded like, by the way. Exact representation. Our team was really strong, and so they ran, and they had a commanding lead. The first handoff was flawless. They did it excellently. The second handoff was also equally as impressive. The third handoff was when it caught to me. We were in a commanding lead. Let me just tell you that on the front end. We were crushing it. We had it in the bag. And so when he handed me the baton, I took it, and I ran like nobody's business. I was running for dear life. You might have heard this story before, and I, it pains me to even retell it because I have to go back and relive this event. It was awful. We were so far ahead, I could have taken my time and walked to the finish line. It would have been great. But that's not what happened. Because as I rounded the corner, I can hear it as clear as day. Someone at the top of their lungs yells the words, stop. In this kind of blood-curdling, like, listen, there's a bomb, someone's dying, something has been mortally wounded. I mean, it was loud. And so I heard this person yell above the entire crowd, which, you know, if a crowd's watching you and we're in the stadium they were yelling and screaming and cheering. And so the fact that I could hear this person above the crowd was impressive enough. But then I realized, oh, no, that sounds serious. So you know what I did in the middle of a race, on the final leg of this race? I stopped. I heard him. I stopped. I don't know how far away I was from the finish line, but I, st I literally stopped running. And I stood there, and I looked around as lost as maybe one of our presidents might have been, looking around like, what's happening? Someone's talking to me. I was a cheap shot. I take it back. I'm sorry. Someone's talking. I was looking, thinking, okay, is there an ambulance? Is there a dog? Something. Uh, I, I looked around, and alas, there was nothing. Except for a lot of people who were, I noticed people looking at me like, what's this guy doing? Is it What's he do? Is he okay? Am I okay? And I'm looking at them saying, are you okay? What's happening? And I, I'm confused. I mean, and it felt like I was there for years. I'm sure it was only a matter of seconds, but it was the longest seconds of my entire life until one guy, I don't remember who he was, but he ran up to me at the side. I was running, so I was in the first lane. He ran to me and he said, what are you doing? 
I mean, he's, he's yelling at me at this point, what are you doing? Keep on running. And I'm looking at him like, what, what, what? And so I did that. I responded. Your Christian life is going to be distracted. It may not be someone who's yelling at you saying, stop when you're running. It might be someone like that today. But your Christian life will be challenged and threatened. And I'm going to tell you that the way that you finish the race is by applying God's grace. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is going to help us understand how we go about doing that. To finish the race, you must apply God's grace. And here is what that looks like. In the moment that I was running, applying God's grace meant that I, I removed the distractions from myself. And as I said, distractions are coming your way. In fact, I came across, uh, I mean, this has not been the first time, but I've come across people in the past who are ex-Christians, ex-Christians who at some point in their Christian life got distracted. They stopped running the race, and they came to realize, you know, I don't like this race after all. In fact, I hate the people in this race. I don't want anything to do with these people. You guys are a cult, and you're this, and you're that, and you're all sorts of things. And it pains me to see this, but that is the reality a lot of people get distracted on the Christian race. They stop running. And what I want to show you tonight is a simple but profound two verses that help us to understand how you keep running. I don't want you ever to quit. And this is one of my last sermons for you. This really could be my last one because it's so fitting. This could be my last sermon, but it's not, thankfully. At least not to my knowledge. But this is a great sermon for you to hear from me. Because here's the thing. When, when you start thinking along the lines of how a lot of people understand their faith. You might be tempted to say, you know what, this is all a sham. My parents made me go. My, you know, the pastors were so abusive and manipulative, and they, they scared me with the teachings about the Bible and, and hell and all these other things. I hate my past. I hate those Christians that I was around. And you start apologizing to everybody because you're upset about it. I mean, and part of me understands. Let me just clarify. Part of me gets it. If you think that you have been deceived for your whole high school career, that you, you feel like, oh, I mean, I woke up from this, and suddenly I realized I was in a cult. Okay, I can understand why you might be upset about that. But let me challenge you, young people, in light of my, of my you know, avatar that I've created here, let me challenge you. If you hear anything from me or from this pulpit or from what we do in this ministry, let me challenge you with this. I want to impress upon you only what Scripture impresses upon you. I want to challenge you to listen to what the Bible says. This is not listen to Pastor Rod hour. This is not listen to what Pastor Rod wants you to do hour. This is not, oh, he's threatening me. If I don't do this, I'm not really a Christian. I, I, I'm just trying to say what the Bible says. And that really is the burden I want to put on your lap. If the Bible says it, you should listen to it. And if you have issues with the Bible or different aspects of apologetic trade, we could talk about that. But ultimately, keeping on running means that you own the faith that God has given you. I am not putting a burden on you. I'm letting Scripture speak to put the burden on you. As you think about the race ahead for you, your Christian faith, I want you to understand that there will be distractions, there will be difficulties, but there is a way to run such that you finish. To finish the Christian race, you must apply God's grace. And that word apply is important because it suggests that you have to do something with it. It can't be stagnant. You can't just let it sit and assume something's going to happen. You have to act. You have to respond. Hebrews chapter 12. Please read with me only two verses tonight which makes it much easier for us to get through, I think, I hope, we'll see. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This, of course, is on the heels of chapter 11, where he went through the hall of faith. Different people who obeyed God. We have Noah and Moses and Rahab and um, Abraham. Did I mention Abraham yet? Uh, Abel. All these people in the chapter 11 that are highlighted as being figures of virtuous faith. Perfect faith? No. 
Not at all, but virtuous faith, an active faith. And now, in response to that, verse 1 of chapter 12, our preacher says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is, all the people that we just mentioned, these people are, in one way, cheering from the stands, saying, you got this, we want to see you finish. And in another way, these people, this cloud of witnesses, are witnessing to us, telling us, look, this is how you do it. Not only are they cheering us on from heaven, perhaps looking down at us, but they're also cheering us on by the, by the very fact that they have examples in the Bible for you to know and to be inspired by. They want you to see their story. They want you to see that God was faithful in their acts of, faithful, in their acts of faith toward God. God delivered. God showed, that God showed through their lives that he was a faithful and good God. And so we have this great cloud of witnesses, these many people that stand before us testifying to God's faithfulness. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, here's the first, let us. Pay attention to the lettuces. They let us know the structure of the text. Let us also, in the same way that they did, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us take off the weights. Let us run with endurance. And you see, of course, here that he's talking about an actual race. He's trying to make the analogy here. You guys have seen people run, right? They're not running with a lot of baggage. They're not running with weights unless they're, you know, that's a specific challenge, you know, they're Spartan or whatever. No, but when you're trying to go for speed and endurance, you dress light and you don't let anything hold you back. And he says, that's the same way that your Christian life should work. You have an endurance race ahead of you. You need to be light and not let anything hold you down, not let anything slow you down. Let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Verse 2, he now continues telling us how to run this race with endurance. We have an object, a goal in mind. We're to be looking to Jesus, verse 2. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now, as a result of his obedience, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He has been exalted, and our job now is to look to him as we run this race. To finish the race, you must apply God's grace. And so the one thing I want to point to you in the first point here, looking only at verse 1, I want you to see the kind of mentality that Hebrew says you need to have if you're going to stay in the Christian race. This is not a negotiable. This is not a take it or leave it. This is, you need this mentality if you're going to finish strong. Oh, young person, please finish strong. Please. I hate seeing young people that I had the chance to pour my heart out to walk away from the faith. It, it crushes me can't let those burden me so far that I, I just, I have to stop thinking about it one because eventually I just get all like, oh, what am, I, what am I even doing? The sustaining grace of your faith is to run in the way the Bible tells you. So point number one, I want to put it like this. You need to train your faith with athletic intensity and precision. Professional athletes are scrupulous about every aspect of their lives because they know that in order to succeed in their field, they must be uh, intense and precise. They have the whole thing. There's passion, there's, uh, there's intensity, but there's also precision. They're measuring inches and milliseconds. There's, I mean, the whole thing is taken in consideration. One of my favorite athletes, and I don't really watch this sport all too often, but I'd watch it if he, was, if he was doing his thing. One of my favorite athletes of all time is Michael Phelps. He is perhaps the greatest athlete ever. 
Arguably so. Why, why can I say that? Well, let me first highlight to you how many medals this guy has. How many did you say? 28? That's right, 28 medals. Now, that sounds super impressive, but it gets even more impressive because 23 of those medals are gold. Olympic medals. 23 of them. He crushed every single bit of his competition. Three silver medals, two bronze medals. Now, just to tout him a little further, he's got the highest number of medals. That's his world record. And he's got the highest number of gold medals. It's not even funny. This guy just crushed every aspect of his sport. He started when he was really young, and he grew into loving the process of calibrating his body to be the best it could possibly be. In fact, let me just tell you a little bit about his training methods. During uh, his later career, as he was preparing for 2008, I believe, he swam seven days a week. That is not a single day off. He worked all seven of them. And on top of that, between the years of 2000 and 2004, he took only four days off in that four-year span of time. Well, five years, depending on how you look at it. Four days off. Four days. That's it. Well, if that's impressive, let me tell you the next thing. During a five-year span, he took no days off. Not a one. We have every reason to believe him because his training is showcased in his performance. And then uh, during one race, he was effectively blinded. His goggles didn't work well, and so the water got into his goggles. He was not able to see in his lane. And so the interviewer asked him, well, Michael, how did you end up still winning the race? And he says, well, we practice every stroke for maximum efficiency. I counted how many strokes it would take me in this particular uh, method of swimming, how many strokes it would take me to reach my depth and to reach my distance. So he knew, based on his speed, how much exactly it would take for him to get from one place to the other such that he could win the race blind, which he did. And he set a record, a new world record for the, for the, I forget what race it was, but he did that. His training mentality was this, I want to give myself the best chance to be the best me. So that meant everything for him was on the table. He was attempting to look at every aspect of his life so he could optimize his performance in the pool. For what? For gold medals. Prestige, notoriety, fame, money. I'm sure there's a lot of things in there. But when I talk about training with athletic intensity and precision, that's, kind of, that's the mentality I want to impress upon you. Paul says, look, some people box like they're, you know, they're beating the air and, and they do it to discipline their body so that they can have some kind of crowning achievement, a perishable wreath, he calls it. He says, they box for that. You train your body, you exercise yourself, not for a wreath that perishes, but for an imperishable wreath for the glory that God bestows upon you. And that's far more important and far more enduring and far more, uh, uh, far more rewarding than anything that a wreath or 28 Olympic medals could ever provide. As we look at this text, we're going to break it down into smaller chunks, smaller and smaller chunks. So here's, here's we're going to have uh, one, two, we're going to have F subpoints. How many numbers is that? A, B, C, D, E, F. That's six. You're going to have F subpoints starting with every little piece of this text. Take a look with me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Okay, the first thing I want to impress upon you, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And what I want to remind you is that chapter 11 tells you about a spat of them, a few of them. And even in, in chapter 11, he says, look, um, time doesn't permit me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. He just says, look, I'm giving you a concentrated list of some of the highlights, but boy, there are so many more. If you're going to train your faith with athletic intensity and precision, let me encourage you to know the history of your sport. 
know about the heroes of the faith. And of course, that applies and even strongly suggests that you should know your Bible inside and out, backward and forward. You should know the stories that are told about the heroes of the faith. Here's why. I don't want you to model after the mediocre. I want you to look at the heroes of the faith and realize, man, these guys demonstrated great faith in Christ. It wasn't perfect. I remind you that wasn't perfect, but it was faithful. Young person, your life is far too short to go halvesies. Your life is far too short to only put in the minimum amount necessary to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're going to do it well, one of the things you have to do is look back at your history and say, okay, how do I best exercise my faith so that I go the distance? And not only that, but that my faith is robust, healthy, strong, strong enough to withstand the onslaughts of secular humanism and all of its children, its intellectual children, that are really shipwrecking so many of your peers in their faith or what faith they used to possess. You need to know your history. Know your sport well enough to know who the heroes of your sport are. Put them on your bedroom wall. Maybe you have a, a poster of Abraham or Pastor Mike. You choose. So I'll let you pick which one. Know the history of your sport. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also. Okay, notice the phrasing. Let us. It's an invitation to say, look, just in the same way that those guys ex uh, exemplified beautiful and robust faith, how about you? What about you, young person? Why not you? What about you come and do this as well? I put it like this. If you're going to train your faith with athletic intensity and precision, you should decide to leave a legacy of faith. You should decide to do this. There is a decision on your part that you get to say whether or not you're going to live in the way that God calls you to. Decide to leave a legacy of faith. How great would it be for you to have kids and grandkids that carry on the faith that you so love, at least right now, the Jesus that you love, how great would it be if you had great, great grandkids who can look back to you and say, because we have so many thousands of photos of my great, 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 great grandpa or grandma, I knew exactly how they lived their lives and what a great testimony of faithfulness that they lived out. You can decide right now to live in such a way that people talk about your faith. There's nothing wrong with that. You should aspire to live a faith that is wonderfully attractive. That's a good thing. And let me encourage you. Think about your legacy. When you die and people stand up at the podium and they talk about you, what do you want them to say about you? What do you really want people, when they distill your life into its most basic parts, what do you want them to say? If you're like me, you want them to say, he loved Jesus more than anything. And he was really good at loving people well. I'm sure some of that resonates with you. The reason that you exist is for the glory of God. And if you decide in your mind right now to say, I want to leave a legacy of faith, your reason for being and your reason for living will be united. There'll be coherence. And man, that's a powerful trajectory for you. But you've got to decide to take that. Let us also, it's an invitation, decide to go that direction. Endeavor to leave the same kind of legacy that you've received for most of you, actually. Most of you guys have a family of faith that has given you this privilege. What a great thing. Pass on that legacy. Still in verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, what? Lay aside 
every weight. Lay aside every weight. Now, of course, there are lots of things in your life that aren't necessarily wrong or bad or evil. It's not a matter of righteousness or unrighteousness. But there are things in your life that are weights that don't help you. They hinder you. I put it like this. If you're going to run the Christian life with athletic intensity and precision, you should not settle for adequate faith. Just enough. I'm going to get by. I'm going to make it. But, uh, but it's just going to be enough. It's the, the word that I brought up earlier. Mediocrity. Lukewarm. Every weight means that you're thinking about the totality of your life and saying, is there any aspect of my life that isn't contributing to my robust, healthy, and ferocious faith in Jesus Christ? It's the same mentality that you would need if you're running, you know, an ultra marathon. If you're running 100 miles, every ounce on your body counts. You're not going to say, well, you know what? I'm going to carry this bowling ball. I might want to stop to, you know, roll a few bowls down the lane here, hit a couple rocks with my bowling ball. You're not going to do that because it doesn't help your race. In the same way, there are things in your life that, while not unrighteous, don't help your Christian faith. They hinder the, your faith. And that could be in the form of people. That could be in the form of inputs, your social media, your, your musical choice, your TV watching, or your streaming, whatever it is. There's a lot of things that are not inherent, inherently unrighteous, but they are not helpful. Paul said, all things are lawful. Not all things are helpful, beneficial. And that means, as we think as Christians— I'm not going to tell you, hey, you can't watch R-rated movies. You can't, I don't know, you can't listen to whoever. I mean, there's, there's wisdom in, in certainly making restrictions like that. But you should be thinking, as a Christian who's free in Christ, how can I live my life in such a way that I maximize my Christian output, maximize my faith? Like Michael Phelps. How do I make every stroke efficient and powerful and strong? How do I make every day of my Christian life effective, powerful, strong? Don't settle, young person. Don't settle for adequate. Don't settle for just crossing the finish line on your hands and knees, kind of just hoping that you get there. Whatever is causing you not to excel in your faith, I would encourage you and challenge you tonight to identify that and consider chucking it. Don't let good be the enemy of the best. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and Get this one, sin, and sin which clings so closely. Okay, you should have saw this one coming, right? There's weights, things that are neither moral or amoral, but there, of course, is sin. Pet sins that you allow yourself to give into because you know you're not likely to get caught. It's not really a big deal, and it's not nearly as bad as some of the other people near me. I can indulge in a little bit of cyanide and not kill myself. Of course, you see the foolishness of that kind of thinking, right? Your, your, your goal as a Christian is to say, I want nothing to do with sin. You should be violent against your own sin. You should have an idea that when I see myself sin, I want to kill it. I'm passionate about pursuing purity in Christ. And that means taking a hard stance against my sin. Why? Well, because sin clings closely. It has the ability to be like a leech, a parasite sucking the life out of you. Sin does not contribute to your happiness. It undermines it and destroys it because sin has the tendency to make you obey its impulses. It becomes your master and you become its slave and therefore it usually catastrophizes your faith. I put it like this. Train your faith with athletic intensity and precision by not underestimating the soul-crushing, energy-sapping weight of sin. Sin will kill you unless you kill it. Sin is heavy. 
Sin is a burden. Sin causes you to be lethargic and listless in your Christian faith. And it costs you more than the pleasure that it brings. It bites. It, it, it creates a debt with ridiculous amounts of interest. And unless you're willing to declare bankruptcy with that sin, that debt accumulates and becomes heavier and heavier and heavier to bear such that your Christian life begins to crumble under the weight of it. I was in Louisville last week or, or the week before at T4G, the last T4G conference. And I packed heavy. I brought my, my laptop. Uh, I brought an iPad. I brought all the charging stuff I need. I brought some headphones. I, just, I packed my backpack because I thought I was, <laughs> silly, I thought I was going to get work done there. So I brought everything I would need. So my backpack was set up. I had it. I carried it with me all through the airport and through Louisville. We walked everywhere, mostly everywhere. And so, I mean, I felt the weight of it. And I realized it was going to be an issue eventually. So I just started putting it down when I had a chance and then kind of stretched it out. It was really hurt. But when I got home the, the weekend after the trip at Louisville, my shoulders were as sore as they had never been in my life. It felt like I had, what do you call that, uh, ruck? I, I rucked for like 30,000 miles. My back was sore. It was all tweaked. And I, was, I was, felt like I was walking like this. It just created such a terrible situation with my body. And that's because I carried this unwieldy burden for five days, four days. That's nothing compared to the weight and the burden of sin. Your sin will create a response in your physical body that you will notice. When you're right with Jesus and you're walking close to him, there is a literal lightness of heart that you feel as a result of that, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? When you're walking close to Christ, it feels better. It feels different. On the other side, on, on contrast, when you're hiding secret sin or you're indulging in things that you know are not right, doesn't that not cause your soul to be heavy? It feels oppressive. It's because it is. Let me encourage you not to underestimate the soul-crushing, energy-sapping weight of sin. And instead, I would love for you tonight to consider those areas that require you to take drastic action. Jesus says if your right hand causes you to sin, put it in your pocket. If your right eye causes you to sin, just cover it with sunglasses. It doesn't say that. Cut it off. Cut off your right hand. Cut off the avenue to your sin. Pluck out your right eye. Even though your right eye was precious, you should do whatever is necessary to keep yourself from sinning. That's the kind of mentality that you need to have when it comes to running the Christian race. One last one here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. A sprint doesn't require endurance. You just need to be able to run really fast in a short period of time. A long-distance race requires a great deal of endurance, and that's what the author is saying here. Your Christian life is not a sprint it's an ultra marathon. It lasts the duration of your entire life, and it's not easy. In fact, when you think about the term endurance, that tells you something, doesn't it? It tells you that your Christian life is going to be a great challenge. You need to prepare for periods of great discomfort. I had to run when I was younger because my school made me. And there were periods of time when, I mean, I don't know, I think the longest I ever ran was maybe seven miles, maybe probably closer to six. I had to do that. And there were times when I was running, I would hit that beautiful thing called the runner's high. It felt like I wasn't running. That's how it was. It felt great because it felt like I wasn't doing what I was doing. My body loved it. But then when the runner's high evaporated, I hated life. 
my feet hurt. I was like, man, how long do I have to do this? I was trying to think about anything in the world. And this is in the day and time where you didn't have, you, you couldn't carry your iPhone with you and listen to your, you know, your AirPods and have your iPhone connect to your arm. You just had to listen to nothing or your friends next to you breathing heavily. And that wasn't any fun. You just had to sit there and suffer. Now it's better because then you can, you can listen to stuff at least. In those days, you just had sunshine or worse if it was, you know, overcast day. Running is not fun. Unless you feel like that is, that's not true. <laughs> Running's not fun, though. It's hard. It takes a toll on your body. The Christian life is a long-distance race that requires you to be okay with being uncomfortable. I loved reading stories about uh, Dean, uh, Dean Karnazes, who is one of the foremost and preeminent ultra-running people, ultra-marathon runners, that's the term. Um, and in some of, some of his stories, he talked about soiling himself. When you're running long distances, apparently... Sometimes you kind of lose control of your bowels. <laughs> he talked about running so long and so far that his feet were bloody. He had lost all his toenails. Imagine that. He talked about running so long and so far that his body had become a noodle by the time he had finished. No energy left over, no, no ability to even move himself. No, he couldn't take himself to the car. He had to be carried, you know, someone took him to the car. That, that mentality, he does that. Why? Well, for, because of the, the joy of the sport. He loves running. He loves getting medals. And now he's a much older gentleman. But he's doing it for a perishable wreath. We do it for an imperishable wreath. I want you to be prepared for a path that is not easy. It's discomforting. At minimum, train your faith with athletic intensity and precision. That's the first point of the night. We have one more, though. And this all, again, is the idea to finish the race. You must apply God's grace. What does that look like? Well, take a look at verse, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 2. That, hold on. Let me try that again. Ah. I had one more sub point. <laughs> okay, let me give you this one more sub point here. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. Set before us. Set before us. I'm going to argue here, if you're going to run well, you need to train with the team for maximal effectiveness. A Christian alone is a Christian destroyed. A Christian by himself is a Christian who's not going to keep running. A Christian who is isolated away from his or her accountability and support is a Christian that will stop running the race, which of course then is no longer a Christian. Young person, it is imperative that you hear me on this. You cannot disconnect from God's church and think that you will live a Christian life. So important that you build the habits of training with the team, as it were, that you stay connected to your pack. This is probably the first thing that goes when people disconnect. They stop connecting with their friends who know them as believers. That's the first change among many, but let me challenge and encourage you. If you want to see your faith blossom and continue, put yourself around people that will challenge your faith. As we like to say around Compass, run with the, run with the runners. Okay, you guys don't know that one. Run with the runners. You want to, you want to have your faith improved? Run with people that are running. Run with people that will challenge you and, and enable you to push past your discomfort. Okay, now verse two. We're to do all this, this mentality we're, we're to have, we're to do this looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And here's this example, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As you're running, young person, as you're making your way with athletic intensity and precision, as you're running toward the finish line, running toward the, the goal, your job 
is to not only train your, your body, as it were, but to train your mind. That mental toughness that is needed if you're going to finish the race strong. I put it like this. If you're going to train your mind, I want you to train your mind on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Train your mind to return to him time and time again. When you're downcast, think about Jesus. When you're having a great day, thank Jesus. When you're having a terrible season, think about Jesus. And not just Jesus in general, Jesus in specific. Think about specific character qualities and specific aspects of his personhood that apply to your specific situation. This is mental fortitude, mental toughness. You're building this in your heart and mind. Back to... Um, to Phelps. Let me show you a brief clip about him describing the kind of mental fortitude he had to develop. When I said I wanted to win eight gold medals, basically half the people in the swimming world thought I was absolutely crazy and nobody could ever do something like that. But for me, I was somebody who believed in it and somebody who believed in the process of getting there. I knew it wasn't going to happen overnight, like I said before. But every little small thing that we did was a small stepping stone in order to, in order to be, even be able to have that chance and that opportunity to, to do what I did in 2008. Because I think there are a lot of people who are very talented who can make it there. There are very few people who can deal with the pressure and the stress that happens when we're there. So that's why I say we had to make sure that we were physically, emotionally, and mentally ready because I had to be ready to be able to kind of manage my emotions through that week. So he talks about the process. I was willing to put in the work for the process, the process of getting myself to the 2008 Olympics and going for six gold medals, which, by the way, at the 2008 Olympics, he scored eight gold medals. He won eight of them, crushed it. But he talks about the way that he gets there. Not everyone can handle the pressure. Not everyone can handle the stress. I needed to be mentally, emotionally ready for the onslaught that would come along with that kind of stage and that kind of opportunity. A young person is not very different. You're not running a race to get on stage in a medal in first place, but you are running a race that requires you to have a mental fortitude of saying, I know life will challenge me. I know my faith will be put through the, 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 uh, the furnace of difficulty and I'm ready for it. I'm going to look to Jesus, and I'm going to find my strength in him and allow him to carry me through this. We need to train our minds on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We need to have a firm and fixed mindset to fuel our minds and thinking with Christ. So let me point this out to what this might look like for you. We're looking to Jesus. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Well, then, first and foremost, then, we need to trust that Jesus will finish the faith that he began in us. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And that means that he's the one that initiates it. He's the one that sanctifies it or perfects it. He's the one that will bring your faith into completion if your faith is real, if your hope is in him. And the challenge for you in this young person is to not put your hope in your obedience. Your obedience is a necessary response to your faith. But it is a response to your faith and not the essential nature of your faith. Your faith must work itself out in obedience. But it is your faith in Jesus Christ, your trust that he will finish what he began, that will sustain you year by year of your adult life. Trust that Jesus will finish the faith that he started. This is a race that you are guaranteed to finish by his grace. This is a race that you are, uh, by his grace, meant to run and to finish, along with all the obstacles laid out. 
We're to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. And these final few points under point two, I want to show you not only the person of Jesus, but now his work. We're going to look at him not only in terms of a understanding the, the reliability that he brings, but also the example that he sets for you. So he does it, he does it for the joy that was set before him. We, sh- we should be like Jesus. Jesus kept his eyes on the grand prize, and so should you. When life gets difficult, when you start to be uh, accosted for your faith, you need to realize that there is a goodness in being obedient. There is a joy in and of that self, in and of itself. But there's also something bigger and better in the future that Christ promises to you if you will but stay in the race. Don't give up when the going gets tough. In fact, you need to be thinking about, okay, well, what awaits me when I finish this race? Well, I will never have to deal with sin ever again. And man, I look forward to that day. I hate the fact that I still sin in such grievous ways. I hate it, but I look forward to the day when I will no longer have to deal with that. Isn't that a profoundly exciting benefit and reward of staying in the game? Here's another one. Jesus looked forward to the joy of being back in perfect union with the Father and being back by his right side, his right-hand side. And that's exactly what Jesus gained. Here's the thing. For you and I, we can have joy even in difficult times because we know we're going to be united to God in a way that we've never known before. The intimacy and joy and privilege that comes with that ought to stoke your joy and excitement in the here and now, even when it's difficult to do that. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, did this. Jesus looked forward to the prize of winning our salvation through his obedience and being back at the right hand of God. You ought to keep your eyes on the prize. And the prize, of course, is to know God, to love God, to live for God, and to enjoy the kind of purpose that you were designed for. He did this. um, It was for the joy that was set before him. And get this, because of the joy that was before him, he was willing to endure the cross willing to endure the cross. You need to understand as you train your mind on the personal work of Jesus Christ, Jesus suffered more than you ever will. And here's why that's important. Jesus suffered hell on the cross so you would never suffer hell in this life or any life ever again. You might enjoy, or you might not enjoy, but you might have to go through difficulties in this life, but this is as bad as it it will ever be for you. Why? Well, because Jesus took all the pain and punishment that you deserved. He took it upon himself. He endured the cross. The cross itself was not a big deal. Granted, no one wants to be hung up naked on a Roman crucifixion rack, have his body splayed open, and all of his everything hanging out for all to mock and see. That was disgusting and awful. But that wasn't the worst of it. Because on the cross, he was absorbing the full wrath of the Father. I don't know how that works, so don't ask me. I don't don't get it. But I do know God was pouring out his wrath upon Jesus to the point where Jesus was responding in such a way where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was separated so that you would never have to be separated. Jesus was punished so you would never have to be punished. Jesus was cursed so you would never have to be cursed. And your job and mine is to recognize that whenever we enjoy communion with God, we need to see Jesus as being the one who satisfied his death his debt, debt, <laughs> try that again, satisfied God's debt that we deserve. Did that sentence make sense? I think it did. Jesus satisfied it. He suffered more than we ever will. And for that reason, 1 Peter 2.21 says, look, to this you've been called because Christ Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. 
If Jesus suffered on the cross for your sin, surely you can suffer on the path that you run with Jesus. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. This is an interesting way of framing this, but essentially I put it like this. Jesus disregarded the cost of obedience. In other words, it cost Jesus quite a bit to be obedient to the Father. But he didn't see that cost as being prohibitive of his obedience. He didn't say, well, man, it's going to cost so much. I don't want to lose these friends. I don't want to lose this scholarship. I don't want to lose this raise. I don't want to lose, you know, this boyfriend or girlfriend. I'd rather just compromise and play nice so that I can keep all these benefits. When Jesus was faced with obedience, he looked at it and said, bring it on. I'm willing to, I'm, I'm willing to, to take on the pain no matter how much it costs because the Father calls me to this and it's for the good of the people that I'm called to serve. And Jesus is called the man of sorrows because of the weight of sin that he carries on our behalf. But he doesn't do it in a dire, depressed way. He does it out of a love for the Father, a desire to be back by the Father's side. And he does this in a way that shows, I'm not going to let the, the shame put me off. Yes, I'm going to be whipped and scourged and hung naked on a cross. Bring it on. Young person, when it comes to you and your challenge with whether or not you're going to obey or whether or not you're going to compromise, let me call you to say, embrace the cost of obedience. And to say, you know what, whatever. Whatever happens, Jesus is going to take care of me. If I have to lose all my limbs and all my friends and all my money to be obedient, so be it. Like Christ, you can look down on the shame. You can say, whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be obedient. I'm going to despise the shame because I know what awaits me. Jesus will be vindicated, and as will I be vindicated because I'm with him. He endured the cross, he despised the shame, and consequently is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. One of the beautiful things is Jesus' ultimate condescension led to his ultimate exaltation. I put it like this, the last point under the second point here is Jesus' great humility resulted in great exaltation. And the reason I put it like that is because Jesus says, look, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus is our example par excellence. He shows us what it looks like to humble himself and then consequently to be exalted to the right hand of God. Your job in this life is to humble yourself, and at the right time, God will exalt you. He will esteem you and establish you. He will bestow honor upon you. You feel like you're on the other side of the world's scorn and mocking and shaming? Okay, so be it for now. In the final days, when you stand before the Lord of glory, he will honor you and esteem you because you belong to him. And then he will reward you and he will grant you everlasting life with no sin, no shame, no dishonor, no loss of friendships. You will experience the full measure of God's glory because of what Jesus did on your behalf. Your job is to stay in the race, to keep at it, to adopt the athletic mindset and let God carry you through. It's not easy, but it is good and it's worth it. That's what it looks like to apply God's grace. That's what it looks like to do all this, to keep your mind fixed on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as you do this, you will run and you will finish. Even if someone yells at you from the sidelines, stop. Unlike me, you'll have the wisdom to ignore it and to keep running. In the few moments that it took me to register what this guy said, I had a realization 
that the person who told me to stop was know, a huckster, a joker. I, I don't know. I don't know. I still, to this day, dude, I can't remember what even happened after that race. But someone said stop, and I stood there, and I thought, oh, no, the race isn't over. I had the wherewithal to look around and notice that the commanding lead that we had was no longer there. And so, with everything I had, I ran as fast as I could. I got as much speed as I could, and I did eventually cross the finish line without stopping the second time. That Marie serves me right. I think we, we did win, but barely. When before we were so far ahead, it wasn't even funny. After getting distracted, I nearly lost and forfeited the race because I allowed someone to distract me from running. There will be distractions that keep you from running. And my exhortation to you as your youth pastor for the, le- the, ne- the next four weeks is to keep on running. Train with athletic intensity and precision. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Because no matter what the world may say, Jesus is better. Let's pray.